Hello, friend. Welcome back to Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel with the Triangle. I am your host, Neil Helligers. And uh, before we get into episode five of the Triangle, which is our midway point, by the way, it's uh, the center point of the Triangle. And I guess it depends on whether it's an isosceles triangle or an equilateral triangle. These are geometry references. This is a word from our sponsor. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler free, so first time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, I admittedly obfuscated the introduction to the word from our sponsor with some mathematics. It doesn't make me a bad person, does it? I don't think so. Anyway, uh, before we get back to it, there's one more person that I want to talk to you about. Our third writer, the incredible Mindy McGinnis. So Mindy, it comes from eight generations of the ancient craft of farming. So not only is she thereby uniquely suited to tell stories of survival of the grid, she is also an Edgar Award-winning novelist who writes across multiple genres, including post-apocalyptic, historical, thriller, contemporary, mystery, and fantasy. And between all this, she weaves a tale so compelling, I would not blame you for thinking that you've been bewitched. But of course, you know, we here at Rome w wouldn't do that to you, at least not on the thriller channel. Maybe on the witchcraft channel, but not on Adrenaline, where it is all thrill and very little hex. So. Without further ado, here is episode five of The Triangle. Enjoy. Tessa Dumont stared at her fellow castaways, shocked at what she was hearing. So to be clear, not only did you not bring Miller back, but they got your gun too? Sigara's blush could be seen even in the dying light of the fire. Going into an unknown situation without it wouldn't have been advisable either. I've already been fired at once on this damn island. I'm not walking around unarmed. Well, now you are, Dumont said somewhat smugly, earning her a warning nudge from Hammond. But she wasn't about to be quiet. 
So we're going to leave Miller with a sub full of Russian men. I hope I don't have to list the reasons why that's not a good idea. McBride spoke up, stirring the fire with the end of a stick. I don't think she's in any danger from them. They seem like decent fellows. Dumont snorted. I don't think you understand men very well. I understand more about men than you think, McBride said. I am one, don't forget. And Miller passed along a code word to St. Clair, Sigara said. Intended for me, Lamprey. She's letting us know she's not in immediate danger. St. Clair snapped a branch over her knee, tossing both ends into the fire. Can we focus here? On what exactly? McBride asked. The submarine full of Russians? The armed octogenarian taking pot shots at us? The underwater city? The little girl who survived a plane crash? Or the fact that this island shouldn't even exist? You're in heaven right now, aren't you? Hammond asked. Died and went there as soon as our compass went berserk, McBride answered. So right around when Johnson's jugular got ripped out? Dumont shot back. Focus! St. Clair yelled, her earlier attempt at guiding the conversation gone completely astray. Not on Russians or little girls or old men. Food, water, shelter. She ticked the last three things off on her fingers. Or am I the only person around here getting hungry? The rest of the group went quiet at the mention of food, and St. Clair took the opportunity to make her point. We can't be worried about solving mysteries if we're starving in the process. We're in a survival situation, people. We need to start acting like it. So, food, water, shelter, Dumont repeated. What about rescue? If I can find a way to transmit food, water, shelter, St. Clair said again. Unless you want to be using your own spinal cord as an antenna, that wouldn't actually work. Dumont muttered. She's right, Hammond said, agreeing with St. Clair and shooting Dumont an apologetic look. Without an antenna, we can't transmit a signal. Best to focus what energy we have on staying alive. If I sang the Bee Gees right now, would it be annoying to anyone? McBride asked. Four hands shot up in unison. Fair enough, so food, water, shelter. He repeated back to St. Clair. We've got the last one covered with the cave, right? Tide doesn't go high enough to flood it. Seems to be the case, St. Clair agreed. Food and water are a different story, though. I got all the bottled water off the boat when we grounded, and it's pretty much gone. Stolen, McBride clarified. Some of it was stolen. Still gone, St. Clair shrugged. Same difference. For food, Hammond began, but St. Clair cut him off with a shake of her head. Water first. We can live for seven days or longer without food. We can only make it three without water. There must be a freshwater source somewhere on the island, Zagara said. Dimitri and his men are surviving. Maybe we should just ask them? Demont interjected. Politely? Olivia is making it too, Hammond said before Dumont could start another argument. So yes, there's got to be a water source. We just need to find it. Easier said than done, St. Clair said. If we do find some, we can use your eternal rays of sunshine to boil it, 
said McBride. I'll go searching with you in the morning, Hammond offered, finding himself in the eternal role of peacemaker. We'll make the water the first priority. As for food, I have a source, St. Clair said, her tone shifting from confident and in charge to something less sure. A source? McBride asked. Like a bodega? No, she said, instantly snapping back. Someone has been bringing me food. What? Hammond asked, followed by a who from Sagara and a why didn't you tell us from Dumont. St. Clair put her hands up in the air, urging silence. Someone is bringing me food, small gifts that I found. I don't know who, and I didn't tell you because I wanted to figure out more before everyone threw questions at me that I didn't have answers for. Understandable, Zagara said. But from now on, I think secrets within the group will only cause problems. St. Clair nodded, but barely. So, McBride said, you totally ate the food, didn't you? To this, she gave a small smile. Right, Sigara said, rerouting the conversation. He pointed at himself and McBride. We'll take foraging duty. Whoever is bringing gifts to St. Clair didn't get them out of a refrigerator or a bodega. If they can find food on this island, so can we. Survival is the most important thing. But shouldn't rescue also be important? Dumont said. If you guys are on food and water patrol, I can be looking at our options. Which are what? Sigara asked, seeming to rouse himself from his own thoughts. In a situation like this, Dumont went on. You either wait to be rescued or you rescue yourselves. Waiting to be rescued is not smart. We didn't get a distress call out before we crashed. No one is looking for us, and even if they were, they wouldn't know where to look. As for saving ourselves, right now I have no way of sending a radio signal, but what I can do is build a signal fire. If we have a large enough smoke plume, ships at sea could see it or passing aircraft... This island has plenty of felled trees, and Hammond has a lighter. We've got nothing to lose by trying. As for rescuing ourselves, the boat has no fuel, but that doesn't mean it can't float. Which makes it a raft, not a boat, St. Clair objected. This is what you do for a living. You know the odds of a raft on the open sea. We didn't manage too well when it was a boat, DeMont said, making St. Clair prickle. What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. Dumont waved St. Clair's irritation away. Look, if we can float that thing, I can navigate us back to the mainland. It's a question of who's willing to trust me. No one said anything. Great, thanks a lot, Dumont snapped. It's not about you, Hammond said. It's... Jesus, I mean it's the ocean. So, we're agreed... St. Clair said, eyeing the group in turn. Food, water, shelter. Fine, Dumont said. But you know what that means, right? We're agreeing that we're stuck here. We're agreeing to be castaways. McBride sucked in a lungful of breath. Well, sir... Cigara cut him off mid-yell, smacking him in the stomach. Don't. Just. Don't.
Michael Hammond woke to the sound of giggling. Travel always disoriented him. He would often wake in a hotel room wondering why his bedroom had changed so drastically overnight, or find himself in his home wondering why he hadn't received his wake-up call. Being marooned on an island was no different. Every time he woke up, before he opened his eyes, he thought he was home. Every time, he was wrong. The giggling clued him in this time, though. Silence was all that greeted him at home. He opened his eyes to find Olivia at his feet, watching a caterpillar make slow, cautious progress across the ridges of his toes. Disgusted, he sat up, flicking the caterpillar into the sand. Where have you been? He whisper hissed at the little girl, not wanting to wake the others who were still curled up in their own sleepy cocoons in the sand. Here, Olivia said with a shrug. Where else could I be? You know what I mean, Hammond said. I was worried about you. Don't be, she said simply, then tugged on his hand. I want to show you something. Hammond pulled on his shoes, throwing a glance over his shoulder at his fellow castaways before following Olivia into the trees. He nudged Dumont, who woke up and sat up quickly, eyes wide and alarmed. I'm going with Olivia, he said to her, voice low. Be back soon. Wait, what? Dumont began, but he left without clarifying further. Olivia was wasting no time, and he had a feeling she wouldn't wait on him either. He spotted her sundress through the trees and caught up with her just as she had turned back to see if he had followed. What do you want to show me? He asked her. You don't have a boat or a plane tucked away somewhere, do you? Olivia shook her head holding a branch to the side so that it wouldn't swing back and hit Hammond in the face. Better? What would I do with a boat anyway? Um, leave? She turned to look at him, genuinely puzzled. Why would I want to do that? Shocked into silence, Hammond could only stare. But don't you want to go home? A little, I guess, Olivia said, moving forward again. But mommy died and daddy's gone. There's nobody here who tells me what time to go to bed or that I have to take a bath. She definitely needs one, Hammond thought. There was a fresh scratch on the back of her leg and dirt encrusted her bare feet to an alarming degree. Olivia didn't seem bothered by her situation, though. She was actually humming a tune as they broke into a clearing. Not just a clearing, Hammond amended when he saw it. A small, spring-fed waterfall trickled from the rocks, descending into a pool below. He knelt beside it, dipping his hand in to take a drink. It was fresh water, cold and clear. See? Olivia said triumphantly. Told you it was better than a plane. Demont sagged to the ground weighed down by the full water bottles she'd helped Hammond bring back from the spring. She was sweaty, tired, and feeling ungrateful. The little girl had possibly just saved their lives by leading them to water, but having a nearby source made everything all the more comfortable. She'd seen St. Clair take a leisurely dip in the ocean this morning, staying well clear of the fast-moving current, 
Sigara had been enjoying the view of St. Clair or the ocean, she couldn't say. And McBride was clearly in love with the place. In order to get anyone to help her with rescue attempts, she first needed people to want to get off the island. Granted, this place was beautiful and, if you ignored the presence of the Russians, peaceful. But Hammond had related Olivia's mysterious comments as they filled their bottles at the edge of the pool. If the little girl, who had disappeared again, was so easily enamored of the island, who was to say that the adults weren't being pulled in the same direction? DeMont, for one, had better things to do than spend her life here like... She shook her head, suddenly unable to come up with anything. What's up? St. Clair asked eyeing her over the mouth of a water bottle. Just worried, Dumont admitted. Everyone seems more interested in being on this island than getting off it. I'm ready to go, St. Clair said, leaning back to rest in the shade. You let me know when the plane gets here. Ha, Dumont said. Fat chance of that, unless we're actually doing something to draw attention to ourselves. So do it. St. Clair said, resting an arm over her eyes. What? Dumont asked. So do it, St. Clair repeated. What are you waiting on? Permission? No, Dumont said, rising to her feet. I'm sure as hell not. Want to help me collect firewood for a signal fire? In a minute, St. Clair said, but showed no sign of movement. Dumont sighed, brushed the sand off her legs, and stalked into the underbrush, an irritated army of one. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer one at a time 
podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Marie St. Clair watched Dumont go with a twinge of regret. She liked her and had no intention of alienating the only other woman on this sideways adventure. But right now, she had bigger fish to fry. She could only hope that would become literal. If her mysterious gift-giver were to bring her some actual meat, spam did not count, it would be amazing, but also too much to ask for. Whoever was bringing her fruit clearly wasn't able to provide for the whole group. For whatever reason, St. Clair had been singled out to receive the gifts. And as flattering as that was, she wasn't the type of girl to not ask questions. The gifts always seemed to appear when she was isolated from the group and distracted enough not to spot the bearer only what they brought. Whoever it was, they were smart enough to be sneaky, but not sneaky enough to hide their pattern. If they behaved today as they had every other time, her supposed nap in the shade would draw them out. Except she was nowhere near sleeping. St. Clair slipped into the mindset she'd use while patrolling the shores, letting her thoughts wander while her body remained on high alert. It gave her analytical brain a break while her instincts were primed and ready. She trained herself well, and she'd lapsed into a daydream about a boat appearing on the shore, and was a little abashed to realize that her subconscious had placed Sergeant Fayard at the helm when she heard the telltale rustle of brush. She knew better than to jump to her feet, Whoever was bringing her fruit was a friend, but a shy one. She couldn't risk frightening them, especially when Sagara and McBride's foraging trip that morning had brought back very little. St. Clair waited until she heard the quietest of footsteps nearby, then a renewed rustle of the brush as they made their exit. Slowly, she moved her arms and opened her eyes. Two fresh coconuts rested at her feet, along with a sharp rock for breaking them open. St. Clair made a small huff in the back of her throat, aware that the gift of a tool meant that not only were they being gifted food, they were also being watched. A slight blush rose in her cheeks when she thought of her dip in the ocean that morning, wearing only her underwear. That brought her to her feet, and she slipped into the brush as quietly as she could, following broken branches, tree limbs swaying as though there was no breeze, and the slightest indication of a shadow ahead of her. They were quick, and lighter on their feet in the brush than she was. St. Clair could run anyone down on sand, and had proven it more than once. But the brush was giving her problems. She couldn't move through it quickly without making a racket, and she didn't want to alarm her quarry. A few minutes later, she cursed that choice. She'd lost the trail and even when she held completely still could detect no movement in front of her. Either she'd accidentally alerted them to her presence, or they had outdistanced her. She wasn't going to find them now. Shit, St. Clair said, wiping sweat from her brow. She'd been smart enough to bring along a water bottle, and took a long swig before evaluating her situation. She figured that tracking her own path back to the camp wouldn't be terribly difficult. It was embarrassing to admit that she'd crashed through underbrush more than moving through it like a predator, but at least she'd created a trail of destruction. She'd wandered far in her pursuit, 
and needed a break before returning. St. Clair rested against the tree, letting her mind slip into the daydream about the boat coming and asking herself some serious questions about why she'd put Fayard at the helm. The image was so striking that for a moment she could actually hear the water breaking against the ship's prow. No, wait. That wasn't her imagination. St. Clair could hear the surf. She opened her eyes and came to her feet, following the sound. In a few moments, she broke out onto a long beach, white and sandy, nearly unbroken except for... What the hell? St. Clair, startled, said aloud. Except for the yacht, beached a few hundred feet away, and a woman toasting her with a wine glass from the port bow. I'm hallucinating, St. Clair thought. Too much daydreaming of rescue mixed with the heat and too little water had caught up to her. But people in the desert see water for a reason, and there was no way that Marie St. Clair's mind had dreamed rich white people to make her feel better. Which meant that they were really there, and so was the yacht. Hello? The woman was calling, her wine glass weaving back and forth. Her yell brought a man up from below decks, his arms nicely tanned, but she'd be willing to bet. Fish pale underneath that expensive shirt. He shaded his eyes and looked in her direction, waving a hand when he spotted her. Come on over, he invited St. Clair. We don't bite. The joke amused the woman greatly, probably owing more to the wine than to it actually being funny. But the man seemed pleased with himself his chemically whitened teeth practically glowing in his face as he smiled at St. Clair on her approach. Now that she was closer, she could see marks of age on the couple that weren't immediately obvious from a distance. The woman's face was tight, her mouth pulled down to the sides from too many plastic surgeries, and the man's forehead was unnaturally smoothed by Botox, not matching the droop that was beginning in his jowls. He kicked down a ladder and descended, greeting her with a warm handshake, pressing both of his hands over hers. Richard Althouse III, he introduced himself. Marie St. Clair, the one and only, she said, earning a laugh that made his pot belly jump a bit. This is my wife, Violet, he said, nodding toward the woman up on the deck. Charmed, Violet assured St. Clair, though the slight acidity in her tone said differently. Perhaps her husband's obvious attempt to suck in his gut for St. Clair's benefit had added it. Storm bring you in? Richard asked, waving for St. Clair to climb the ladder. She pretended not to see the gesture, preferring to keep her feet on familiar territory until she knew more about the two. Yeah, she said, eyes sweeping the area. You? Oh, we've been here for a bit. Not so long as to drain the bar, though, right, Violet? Violet only raised her glass in answer. Not that she isn't trying, Richard leaned down to say in St. Clair's ear as he elbowed her in the side. Uh-huh, St. Clair said, stepping away from him. Hey, Richard's eyes landed on St. Clair's gun. What's a nice girl like you doing with a piece like that? Owning it, she said, not liking the way his eyes lingered on her sidearm. Ah, I see, Richard said, then fell silent. 
His eyes passed over her once, twice, and St. Clair felt the hairs on the back of her neck prickle. He wasn't checking her out. This was something else. Something she knew well because she did it every day. She was being assessed. Can I offer you anything, then? Richard's words were polished and polite, his tone more appropriate for a garden party than a deserted island. And while his words were kind enough, his body language had changed the moment she put distance between them. Richard was doing his best to make conversation without actually saying anything, and she wasn't about to give away her own situation either. Is there anyone else on the island that you know of? She asked, answering his question with a question. Oh, let me think. His eyes widened comically, but she saw calculation behind the cool blue irises, and he was letting her see it. Mr. Richard Althouse III was fucking with her. Honey, have we seen anyone else? He called up to the deck. Just you, me, and this little chickadee, Violet sang back. He shook his head, as if disappointed at the news. Sorry, Miss Marie, I'm afraid we've got nothing. Mm-hmm, she said, keeping her lips together to avoid saying much worse. Something in the trees caught his eye, and he took St. Clair's arm, turning her away from what he had spotted. He escorted her down the beach as if taking his leave of a five-star restaurant. I'm sorry we couldn't help you out, he said, his pace quickening. But feel free to come back tomorrow and see if we know more. He dropped her arm at the edge of the trees, at which point he seemed to think his gentlemanly duties had been performed. More than happy to part company, St. Clair ducked into the shade, took a moment to orient herself, and headed back toward camp. Oh, don't worry about Miss Marie, she said under her breath. This little chickadee got everything she came for. Dumont was not a happy camper. In her family, that had been the biggest insult possible, an indication that you were the one bringing down the group mentality. She sighed, pushing hair from her face. Somehow, Dumont always felt like she was the unhappy camper in every group. And she had a right to be. They were marooned. No one was helping her gather wood for a signal fire. And her ponytail holder had broken. She knew that was the least of her worries. But with a heavy mane of hot hair hanging in her face and no indication of when she might be able to replace her hair tie, Dumont was the unhappiest camper ever. Period. And she wasn't going to apologize for that. There was a rustling behind her and Dumont spun, holding up a branch as thick as her arm. She almost hoped it was something she could club. She didn't even care if she could eat it. She just needed to hit something. St. Clair emerged from the underbrush, palms turned outward to Dumont. It's just me. You scared me, Dumont admitted, lowering the branch. Might not be a good idea to be out here alone, St. Clair said. I wouldn't be alone if you would help me instead of wandering off to... to... Flustered, she ran out of words. Find your antenna, St. Clair offered, flooring the other woman. Shut the front door, Dumont said. 
And the fuel tank from our boat, Sinclair added, clearly enjoying herself. Dumont dropped the branch, no longer interested in the signal fire. What? How? She glanced around before asking the most important question. Where? On the other side of the island, with some people who aren't going to give it up easily. Oh, they'll give it up, Dumont said, an aggressive edge in her voice. And it shouldn't come as a shock, since they're obviously familiar with the idea of people taking things that don't belong to them. Yeah, they seem pretty used to having things, St. Clair nodded, lifting her hair from the back of her neck. The guy's around. I'd like to tell the story only once. Over at the cave, Demont said. They're organizing what food stores and water we have left. She put organizing in air quotes. So Sagara is telling Hammond what to do and McBride is getting in the way? Pretty much, Dumont said, spotting a few hair ties slipped around St. Clair's wrist as she put up her own hair. Um, can I borrow one of those? Sure, St. Clair said, slipping one free. Keep it. They made their way over to the cave, able to pick up a bit of conversation on the wind, or at least a monologue from McBride. Because of Area 51, of course. And once you've drawn that line, there's nowhere left to go but up. I mean up, fellas. All the way to the president. How about out? As in, getting the hell out of here? St. Clair said, drawing all their attention. I'm listening, Sigara said as Hammond joined the group. Keep doing it, St. Clair said. No interruptions. She directed the last part at McBride, who appeared offended. There's a yacht on the other side of the island, St. Clair continued, immediately raising her hands for silence at the collective inhale she had expected, managing to stop the barrage of questions. It's manned by an elderly couple, Richard Althouse and his wife, Violet. They appear to be friendly, and I mean exactly that. It's all appearances. They offered me something to drink but were in a hurry to get me out of there when I wasn't falling for their first-class charm, and the rest of their party was about to arrive. The rest of their party? Sorry, guilty of interrupting, McBride said. Richard and Violet aren't survivors. Oh my God, are you telling me they're dead? We're talking zombies here? St. Clair looked at Sigara. Gag him? He waved her off, but pointed at McBride. Save the questions for later. And the shit for never, got it? McBride nodded, and St. Clair gave him a dark glare before continuing. They aren't survivors. As in, these people know which fork to use for their salad, and can probably tell you the year of the wine they are drinking by taste, but they are out of their element here. There's no way they're making it on their own. They've got help, and they didn't want me to know it. There were two shirts hanging over the bow to dry that wouldn't fit either of them, and those two wouldn't be caught dead in them anyway. Whoever is helping them is small, probably not an adult yet, and since we've only ever seen Olivia in her sundress, we can rule her out. Could it be whoever is bringing the food? Dumont asked. Maybe, St. Clair said, not biting at Dumont for asking a question since it was a valid one. There's more. They might not be in their element here, but they aren't stupid either. Both of them were sizing me up, each in their own way. How do you mean? Sorry, 
Hammond immediately tacked on. St. Clair rolled her eyes, aware now that interruptions were inevitable. They were assessing me, trying to figure out if I was useful to them. What did they decide? asked Hammond. After I made it clear I wasn't going to be handing off my gun to be waved around like a showpiece, they decided I was not necessary. Richard actually escorted me away from their yacht. McBride blew out a low whistle. Classy guy. But not before I spotted our antenna and fuel tank. St. Clair finished, finally stunning the men into silence. See, guys, Dumont said. Let her talk. Well, back up, Cigara said. They have our antenna and fuel tank? Yep, St. Clair said. I think whoever is bringing me food is also helping them. The shirts I saw at the boat were for children, and whoever is bringing my gifts is quick and light on their feet. I don't know if the food is a gift so much as an apology. Like, oops, sorry we stripped your boat, have a coconut? McBride asked. St. Clair shrugged. Maybe. If they are young, Richard and Violet are probably calling the shots. They were told to take our stuff. Giving us food might be the only way they can try to make it better. I don't care about the coconuts, Cigara said. I care about the fuel tank and that antenna. I want them both back. And I want them back now. Hammond found Dumont near the meager pile of wood she'd managed to haul to the beach. St. Clair had agreed to take Cigara back to the yacht, on the condition that she get to drink something first. The trek across the island in the morning heat had taken a toll, and she needed a few minutes. Hammond had watched Dumont exchange a few words with Cigara, unsurprised when the conversation turned heated and she had walked away upset, seeking the isolation of her rescue fire. Hey he said, approaching her cautiously. Hey, she echoed back. Here to help the unhappy camper? I don't think any of us are exactly chipper right now, Hammond said, reaching to help her lift a large piece of driftwood onto the pile. Thanks, she said. But I know I'm the rain cloud in the group. At least you're not a spout like McBride. That got a smile out of her and Hammond felt a flicker in his chest at the sight of it. He didn't want to bring the conversation back to darker matters, but his concern outweighed his preferences. Cigara said you couldn't go with them back to the yacht, didn't he? Yep, Dumont said, moving back toward the trees to gather more wood. That's exactly how he put it, too. I can't, as in, I'm not allowed. If Richard and Violet are as charming as St. Clair makes them sound, it might not be a bad idea to sit this one out, Hammond said, following her into the shade of the trees as she gathered more wood. I don't want to go make friends, Dumont said. I want to go get my antenna back. All this? She swept one arm, encompassing the sticks she was gathering and the pile on the beach. This is all I can do right now to help the group. Build a fire... Very basic shit. If we get the antenna back, I can do more, a lot more. I can get us out of here. You really think so? Hammond asked. I know so, she said. 
Hammond nodded. I'll talk to Sagara. They broke back out into the sun, and Dumont dropped her armlet of sticks onto the pile. You don't have to talk to anyone. I don't need permission to go. Sigara is a vice admiral of the U.S. Navy, not the NTSB. He's not my CO, and I'm not his seaman. Hammond watched her cheeks get brighter as she spoke, anger lighting her face. Fair enough, he said, unable to hide his smile. What? Dumont asked, her eyes narrowing. You're not going to say I'm pretty when I'm mad, are you? Because that would be a bad move right now. No, Hammond said, raising his hands in surrender. It's just nice when you're mad at someone who isn't me. Fair enough, Dumont said, giving him another smile. Any luck with the tapes we found in the city? No, Hammond sighed, not liking that the conversation had turned to something he had to disappoint her with. I don't have any way to listen to Reel to Reel in my kit. Our best bet would be to recover a player from the city. They've got enough reels. Surely there's more than one player in there somewhere. Dumont nodded, but her brow furrowed. Any concern about bringing the reels closer to the beach? I still don't know what exactly we passed through to get here. Whatever that magnetic anomaly was, it was strong. Could it erase the reels? Hammond shrugged. Only one way to find out. We'll know when we listen to them. If we find a way, Dumont couldn't help but add. Sorry, she tacked on, aware that she wasn't doing anything to improve her storm cloud status. We're stranded on an island, Hammond said, nudging her. You're allowed to be grumpy. They headed back to the camp together, and as they walked, Hammond realized the oddest thing. For the first time in a long time, he felt happy. Here, on an island in the middle of nowhere, populated with armed Russians and miscreant children for whatever reason, he felt good. Until he saw St. Clair staring down Sagara as if she were about to take his head off. Come again, St. Clair said in a tone that made it very clear she had heard him the first time and he might want to change his statement upon being asked to repeat it. McBride joined Dumont and Hammond, and Cigar noticed his growing audience. I'm not trying to start a fight, he said. Looks like it's too late, McBride said. I'm not giving you my gun, St. Clair said, her eyes never leaving Cigar's face. That's not what I'm asking you to do, Sagara said calmly. This Richard character noticed your gun, and you said yourself he wants it. They sound like a crafty couple. They're not going to just hand us back our stuff. If we walk in there with something they want, they'll try to barter. Do you really want your gun on that table? No, St. Clair had to admit. I'm not asking you to give me your gun. I'm asking you to leave it behind when we go. St. Clair's eyes narrowed again. Leave it with who? The conspiracy theorist or the tech geek? I don't like my options. How about DeMont? Zagara asked, only to have her step forward. I'm going with you, she announced. 
If they try to barter, you'll need someone who can determine if the fuel tank or the antenna were damaged when they were stripped. We don't want to be conned into bargaining for broken things. And by the way, you could trust me with it, McBride added, not letting the insult to his pride slip. It's not about trust, St. Clair said. This is a gun, boys. Unless either one of you has proper training, I'm not handing it over. That medkit can't do much if you shoot yourself in the foot. You're right, Sagara said. How would you feel about putting it somewhere neutral? Like Switzerland, McBride suggested. Like the cave, Sagara answered, ignoring McBride. St. Clair's jaw relaxed a little. I can leave with that. It's settled then, Sagara said, relaxing a bit himself. He glanced at Dumont. If you're coming, you better be ready. Ready, Dumont said. St. Clair unbuckled her sidearm. All right, let's go meet the one percent. David Sagara's reaction to Richard Althouse III was exactly what St. Clair's had been. From the second Richard enveloped Sagara's hand in both of his, Sagara felt like he was being managed. We might be on a deserted island, Richard said, still pumping the handshake. But it's rather kind to us older men, isn't it? He gave a nod to the women flanking Sagara, and the vice admiral felt both St. Clair and Dumont bristle. We're here about our belongings, Sagara announced, cutting to the chase. Richard's brow furrowed in mock confusion. Above them, on her deck chair, Violet emitted a small huff. What's that now? Richard asked, leaning forward as if he hadn't heard. Your belongings? Specifically, that fuel tank and this antenna, Dumont said, heading over to the ladder. Richard moved to intercept her, blocking her path. One moment, Miss Dumont, she said. Tessa Dumont, I'm an investigator with the NTSB. Don't be so bold, dear, Violet called down. It's not attractive. I'm unconcerned with being attractive, Dumont said. Violet shrugged, taking a sip of wine. Pity. Well, Miss Dumont, Miss St. Clair, Vice Admiral, Richard said, nodding at each of them in turn. We appear to have a situation. We have something you want, and I don't feel inclined to give it to you. It's not yours, St. Clair said. You or someone working for you stripped our boat. You took advantage of fellow castaways. Richard shrugged. Maritime salvage law. Maritime... St. Clair's voice trailed off. You're kidding if you're invoking it, you better be sure you know what you're talking about, Dumont said. Finders keepers, Violet said from the deck. Nope. Dumont shook her head. That's not how it works. The principle of maritime salvage states that any person who helps recover another person's ship or cargo in peril at sea is entitled to a reward commensurate with the value of the property salvaged. Richard took a deep breath. Calculations spreading across his face. Now, Dumont continued, I'm willing to concede that you helped recover our things instead of stealing them, St. Clair interjected. 
If you're willing to agree that commensurate in this case would be splitting the recovered items, as we've got nothing to recompense you with. St. Clair watched as Richard's eyes predictably flickered to her waist, where the gun no longer rested. Their gazes met, and she was pleased to see him flinch. His manner changed immediately, though, sliding back into his garden party mode. Look, I think we got off on the wrong foot, he said easily, reaching out to squeeze Dumont's shoulder. Who would like a drink? Nobody moved. Richard's face shifted again, this time to that of a stern taskmaster. Now you're just being difficult. Violet and I have done nothing wrong. We came across an empty boat on the shore, saw some things that could help us in our situation, and claim them for ourselves. It's nothing any of you wouldn't have done. Except we didn't, Sagara said, which is exactly the point. We're not asking you to feel bad about this. We're asking you to follow the law of maritime salvage, which you yourself invoked. Richard watched them for a moment, eyes roving among the trio. Violet, he called up to the deck. Give them what they want and make them leave, she said. I don't like looking at them. She has spoken, Richard said widening his arms as if receiving Violet's wisdom from on high. According to the on-island lawyer here, he nodded at Dumont, we share what was salvaged. Dumont let the crack go. So what do you want? It was well done, Sagara had to admit. They could run the risk of outright asking for their preferred salvo, only to have Richard deny them or they could ask for what they didn't want, only to have him grant their wish. Luckily, Dumont went for it. The antenna, she said with such authority that Sagara had a hard time believing anyone could deny her. The antenna, Richard said, lifting his hands like a game show host. What do you say, dear? Fine, Violet called. Well then, your wish is my command, Richard said. The antenna is all yours. Fantastic, Dumont said in a flat voice. Sigara kept an eye on Richard while St. Clair and Dumont collected it, sparing a glance for Violet once in a while. She seemed completely unconcerned throughout the whole affair, the wine level in her glass lowering as she watched the proceedings. They parted civilly, if cautiously. St. Clair leading the way into the trees to hold back branches for Dumont as she struggled to make progress with the awkward antenna. Sagara was the last to leave the beach, turning his back on the couple reluctantly. I didn't care for that, he said once they had passed out of earshot. Not the best of neighbors, Dumont agreed. But that fuel tank won't do them much good. It's diesel. That yacht is gasoline-powered. Nice, St. Clair said. But how did you know that Richard would go for it when you said you wanted the antenna instead? I didn't know for sure, but I took the risk. You're right. Someone is helping them out, and whoever it is knows what they're doing. That craft is near seaworthy, and if they're planning on leaving anytime soon, they want fuel more than they do communications, especially if their own radio wasn't damaged when they were marooned, which appears to be the case. How much fuel was left in the tank they lifted? Sagara asked. We were leaking pretty heavily, Dumont said, 
but any amount will be useful to them. If not in their own craft, then for trade. You think they can sail? Sagara asked. I think they can, soon, she answered. Why? Do you want to hitch a ride? I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I'd rather be stuck on an island with McBride. McBride surprised them all by returning to the camp with his pants rolled to his knees, shirtless, his button-up folded into a makeshift basket full of small fish. No way, Sinclair said, rising from her seat. Hey, I have my uses, McBride said, handing over the fish. I did a walkabout on Easter Island one time. I had hoped to commune with the spirits, but communing with edible stuff is even better. That pond Olivia showed Hammond is stocked to the brim. Nice, DeMont agreed. Do you know how to clean them? I do. Who's got a knife? When they all looked at each other blankly, he sighed. Well, you can spear and roast them, but we'll all be picking bones out of our teeth. Bones or not, everyone seemed content when Cigar got the coconuts open with the rock St. Clair's gift bearer had supplied. A decent meal was an unexpected luxury. Not bad, Hammond said around a mouth of hot fish. Better than starving, Dumont agreed. St. Clair's head suddenly cocked, her eyes widening. Sigara caught her glance and shook his head. The others had not heard the noise in the brush. So, I've been thinking about the lagoon, he said to distract them. You and me both, brother, McBride said, licking the leaf he'd been holding his fish with clean. Or should we just go ahead and call it the city? An underwater city, no less. Now that we've got our survival bases covered, Sagara went on, I don't see the harm in looking into it more closely. I've got questions, and I won't feel like we did our job here if we don't leave with answers. Is leaving even an option? Hammond asked. Were you able to get anywhere with the antenna? Dumont shook her head. It was too dark to work on by the time we got back to camp. It appears undamaged, though. In the morning, I'll have a better idea of where we stand with it. And maybe you and I can compare notes? McBride asked, gesturing towards Sagara. I've got ideas about what's going on with that city and the Russians and, he added, flicking his leaf into the fire, where St. Clair disappeared to just now. DeMont and Hammond both stiffened, having not noticed her slipping away in the dark. Right then, there was a cry in the woods, the sound of a scuffle, and then a figure appeared out of the darkness. A young boy being marched toward their fire, St. Clair guiding him by the arm. She brought him into the light and he sagged to his knees, making no move to escape. Hammond handed him a piece of hot fish, still wrapped in a leaf. Repayment for the coconuts, he said. I assume we have you to thank for those? And to not thank for taking our water, McBride added. The boy nodded, gaze moving around the campfire. Relaxing somewhat, he accepted the gift and bit into the fish. St. Clair took a seat beside him, eyeing him as he ate. He was terribly thin. She could see his ribs through the t-shirt he was wearing, which was indeed one of the ones she had spotted drying on the prow of the Althouse's yacht. He ate quickly 
putting the fish away in a few bites. What's your name? St. Clair asked when he had finished. Cory? Cory Zuiki? Zuiki? St. Clair repeated, the surname familiar to her. You are from Tobago? Cory nodded. And your cigar? he said. He's McBride and... We get it, kid, McBride said. You've been watching us. What we don't know is why. Without answering, Corey's eyes returned to St. Clair. McBride laughed, shaking his head. <laughs> Never mind. It's pretty clear. Thank you for the food, St. Clair said, ignoring McBride. Our first few days would have been rough without it. Corey ducked his head, a blush creeping up his cheeks. Were you also the one who stripped our boat? St. Clair asked this gently, somehow making it sound like doing so had been as much of a favor as the coconuts. Corey's head sank lower, but he nodded. We didn't see any people. Thought it had washed up in the storm. We don't steal, I swear. I believe you, St. Clair said, resting a hand on his shoulder and holding the other one in the air to stifle DeMont who'd been about to contradict his statement about not stealing. Who is we? Sigara asked. My brother? Corey lifted his head. Malik? He won't be too happy with me, getting caught and all. I'm not even supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be... But he cut himself off, deciding not to share what he was supposed to be doing. Hammond cleared his throat. You don't take anything unless it's earned, do you? He asked. You weren't even going to accept that fish from me until I said it was repayment for the coconuts. Don't need charity, Corey said. Malik and me, we work for everything we get. And what are you getting from Richard and Violet? Dumont asked smoothly, seeing where Hammond was headed. I know they didn't fix up that yacht themselves. I doubt they know what a screwdriver is between the two of them. What's the exchange for your services? Corey only shook his head. You don't know, or you can't say, St. Clair pressed, but could get nothing more out of the boy. She leaned in closer to him, speaking low. Listen to me, Corey. I don't know what they promised you, but you can't trust them. Richard and Violet might say the right things and know all the right words, but they're only saying what they know you want to hear, understand? When the time for action comes, the only thing they care about is themselves. That's the type of people they are. Corey nodded solemnly, his dark eyes fixated on hers. Maybe, he finally said. But they've got a boat. McBride belted out a laugh, startling all of them. The kid's got a point, he said. We're better company, but they're the better bet. St. Clair shot him a look over the fire. Get on back before they figure out you've been gone, she said to Corey, slipping him another piece of fish. He took it, purposely brushing his fingers against hers, before disappearing into the trees. What? St. Clair asked when she turned her attention back to the fire to find the other four staring at her. 
I think that's the nicest I've ever seen you be to anybody, Sagara said. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, St. Clair replied. I don't know if Corey is the Althouse's enemy exactly, Hammond said. No, McBride agreed. But he did just become St. Clair's spy. Exactly, St. Clair said. Hammond woke in the morning to find that Dumont had risen well before him, beginning her work with the radio and antenna at first light. Any luck? he asked, resting beside her in the sand. She'd chosen to work near the half-hearted pile of wood meant to be a signal fire, now abandoned for the more high-tech option. Progress has been made, Dumont said, not looking away from her work. Everything is functioning, or at least it seems to be. All things considered, there's no reason why this shouldn't work. Except our current good run of bad luck, Hammond said. And the possibility of interference from whatever that magnetic anomaly was that took out our compass on the way in, Dumont added. Yeah. Hammond dropped his voice when he spotted the others moving around near the mouth of the cave. They weren't close enough to overhear, but he wasn't taking any chances of McBride being able to detect the word anomaly from a mile away. That's my concern as well, Hammond admitted. If you're right about that, the chances of getting a signal in or out are pretty slim. If I'm right about that, Dumont said, we all better start being real nice to the althouses. There's only so much space on that yacht. Pass. Hammond said. Seriously? Demont asked, finally looking up. If you had the chance to leave, you wouldn't take it? Not with someone I can't trust, Hammond said, holding her gaze. Hmm. was all he got in response. The radio had Dumont's full attention again. All right, she said. Here goes nothing. She flicked the radio on and they were met with a buzz of static. Okay, Dumont said, her voice careful and measured. Don't get too excited just yet. She spun dials, eyes narrowed in the sun. There are a handful of international distress frequencies that I'll broadcast on, sticking to the long-range ones. I'll move on to the search and rescue frequencies after that. They should all be monitored. If our signal is getting out, We'll know sooner rather than later. Dumont picked up the handset and took a deep breath. Mayday, mayday, mayday. She gave the five-digit identification number of their boat and went on to say they were stranded on an island, giving the coordinates they'd been using at the time of their crash. Then she paused, looking to Hammond. They both knew what came next in a distress call. She was supposed to say how many souls were on board to prepare the rescue crew for intake. He could see her mentally calculating. Seven souls on board, she settled, and Hammond did the quick math. She was accounting for two extra people, and he was guessing they weren't Richard and Violet. Olivia and Corey? he asked. What about Miller or Corey's brother? Right, Dumont said. We'll just make it an even ten on the next call. I don't know if Dimitri will ever give us Miller back, but she'll have a seat on the next plane out of here if I have anything to say about it.
Lamont had been ticking off seconds on her fingers as she spoke. When a minute had passed, she repeated the Mayday call and tuned to a different frequency. Mayday, 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 she said again, starting the call over. Hammond dropped his hand to her shoulder, squeezing hard enough to silence her. What? she asked, but he held up a hand. Do you hear that? Dumont's face crinkled as she listened, not able to distinguish anything right away from the sound of the tide. Then, unmistakably, she could hear a plane. Holy shit, Dumont said. That's not, Hammond sputtered. I mean, there's no way they responded that quickly, is there? Who cares, Dumont said, dropping the radio and running down the beach toward the cave, where the others were also looking up at the sky, having heard the engine. Where? Sagara asked, scanning the horizon. There, St. Clair shouted, pointing to a small fleck in the sky. It grew rapidly, the sound escalating along with it. Come on, Dumont said. Everyone out in the open. Remember to hail by waving both arms in the air. That's the signal for distress. If you only wave one, that means you're all right. Um, not to be a pain in the ass, but if we're all waving our arms, won't they get the point either way? McBride asked. You are a pain in the ass, and you're not waving either of your arms, Dumont yelled, but she was smiling. They all were as they ran onto the sand, arms waving wildly, some of them even calling out loud, which was pointless over the sound of the engine, which had become louder and strangely erratic. Sugara paused, his arms in midair. That's a fighter jet, he said. And it's in trouble, McBride added. They were both right. The jet was rapidly losing altitude, and they could clearly see when the pilot ejected, shooting into the air, his parachute opening in a flare of red and white against the morning blue of the sky. Sigara was already stripping off his boots and belt, preparing to go into the water after him. The jet sheared into the water, sending up walls of spray on both sides of its sharp nose and creating a wave that reached the group knocking Dumont and McBride to their knees. McBride kept his balance, but Dumont went over, Hammond grabbing her wrist to keep her from going out to sea with the receding water. She came up sputtering in time to hear McBride say, What the hell? Hammond's grip on her arm tightened, and she turned to see why. The jet was rusting in front of her eyes a fast-spreading oxidation that overwhelmed the bright, shining metal in a wave much stronger than the one that had knocked her over. A wing buckled, and she could see the internal structures warping and breaking, morphing from industrial-strength steel to a battered wreck in a matter of seconds. If she hadn't watched it fall into the sea, she'd estimate the wreck to have been there for years, maybe even decades. Sigara was frozen, hand on his belt buckle as he watched the pilot descend, the seat he had ejected from falling before him. It tattered in the spray from the wreckage, fabric shredding, buckles disintegrating before it hit the sea with a splash, the pilot following behind. No, 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 St. Clair said, unable to do anything else. But soon her words were drowned out by his screams. His boots deteriorated as he fell, 
pieces of dried out leather and rotten laces blowing away on the wind, his pants tattering quickly thereafter. The pilot's hands went to his chest as he descended, tearing at his shirt and then his face, his hair going from a shining black to brilliant white in a moment. Jesus, Hammond breathed, his own hand covering his heart in empathy. The cries died out as something fell from the pilot's mouth. Teeth, Dumont thought. And then his skin came away entirely, leaving only a skeleton to drift down into the water, the parachute covering where he lay, as if to give him some privacy after the indignity of such a public death. Jesus, Hammond said again his eyes moving to each member of the group. Did you? Did you guys see that? Yeah, Cigar confirmed, hands still frozen on his belt buckle. What the hell was that? St. Clair asked. We just watched a man die. Worse, McBride corrected, eyes on the last of the jet as it sank beneath the waves. We just watched a man age to death. Okay, so um, I have a, a small confession to make. I will admit that I somewhat blended my role as host and as voice actor for this series in the intro. When I mentioned, I emphasized that this was the midway point. And the reason why I did that was because when it came out that they got the radio and they were able to call for help and that jet came, uh, I didn't want you to be too disappointed when it completely disintegrated in front of their eyes and wasn't the means for their escape off the island. Uh, you know, just I, I planted that seed so that you wouldn't think, huh, okay, so the, the jet comes and they're rescued and uh, I guess that's it. What a weirdly short series this was. I was promised more episodes. So uh, again, a bit of a breach as host, but as your voice actor and friend, I wanted to kind of smooth that transition into the second half of the triangle where things are really just heating up. Um, and that is an island joke. It's always hot, but sometimes it's cold, like the Cold War. I'm going to stop and uh, just uh, see you next time for episode six of The Triangle. Take care. You're listening to Adrenaline, The Triangle, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Triangle is created by Dan Cobalt and written by Dan Cobalt, Sylvia Spruck Wrigley, and Mindy McGinnis. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Neil Helligers. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Bagala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.